When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Vass here with a bonus episode, courtesy of our friends at With Reason. With Reason is the podcast from New Humanist Magazine and the Rationalist Association. I love it, and I'm pretty sure you're going to love it too. It's full of sharp thinking from big and emerging names in science, philosophy, and culture. Series 3 is coming out right now and includes episodes on motherhood, race, mental health, the new space race, and the strange world of quantum mechanics. The episode I'm about to play you stars the anthropologist, author, and broadcaster, Alice Roberts. Find the show at newhumanist.org or on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Without further ado, here is With Reason. Hi, and welcome to With Reason with me, Samira Shackle. And me, Nikki Seth Smith. With Reason is where we meet people in fields like philosophy, science, and culture whose work and ideas challenge dogma and lazy thinking. It's a place to consider questions of reason and unreason, belief and disbelief, critical thought and debate. And today, it's a place to think big about who we are and where we've come from. And in this series, we're talking to people like the physicist Carla Ravelli about the nature of reality and science writer Lucy Jones about wilderness and well-being. But today, we're with the anatomist and biological anthropologist Alice Roberts discussing our prehistory. Samira, I'll be listening in and back with you later for a bit of a chat. But it's over to you for now. Yeah, so Alice Roberts is an academic, an author and a broadcaster. Uh, I think lots of our listeners will have already heard of her because I don't think it's any exaggeration to say she's one of Britain's most well-known contemporary scientists. Uh, she's been a regular fixture on TV and radio for, for the last two decades, uh, starting with uh, Time Team on Channel 4 uh, back in 2001, where she was a bone specialist. Alice first trained as a doctor before specialising in um, the, the crossover between human anatomy and, and archaeology and history. And she's published numerous books, as well as presenting popular TV and radio shows about science. Uh, she's also a professor of public engagement in science at the University of Birmingham. Um, and she's been vocal about her atheism, and she's currently the president of Humanists UK. Uh, so her research combines biology and anatomy with archaeology and anthropology uh, to shed new light on ancient history. And that's something that she does in her new book, Ancestors, which zooms in on seven burial sites in Britain uh, to explore what new science can tell us about the bodies that are found there and, and the context in which they lived. Underpinning much of that new science uh, is developments in and collaboration between the fields of genetics and archaeology. Uh, so I started by asking her about how these two seemingly very different fields are shaping each other. It's just a really exciting time at the moment. So genetics has been able to give us some information uh, about the deep past and uh, and particularly about humans in the deep past for probably 20 years and we're basically looking at the same techniques that are used to look at the DNA of living people, but now that's applied to people that have been dead for an extremely long time in some cases. 
And due to advances in both being able to extract DNA out of very ancient bone and then essentially to be able to reconstruct the genome from that, but also actually advances in how fast you can sequence a genome. We're just getting so much information coming through now. And we've also moved beyond, I mean, just over 10 years ago, I made a series for the BBC called The Incredible Human Journey, where we looked at Paleolithic migrations that basically was the, it was the story of the the origin of our species in Africa and then the emergence of our species and, and the migrations. It's a tricky word, migration, because we tend to think about it as, as journeys during someone's lifetime. But over generations, you get these these migrations which took people to colonise the entire world. And, you know, that all happened in the Paleolithic and the Old Stone Age. And the evidence for that comes from not only, you know, your traditional, I suppose, archaeological sources but now we've got this genetic strand of evidence as well and so back then when I made that series we were looking at the available genetic evidence and a lot of it was um, in terms of small stretches of DNA or particular focuses that people had had looked at I suppose then the next step was to use genome-wide analyses which looked at particular points in the genome where we knew that there were likely to be changes likely to be mutations um but what what geneticists are doing now is reading whole genomes you know from cover to cover and it's just extraordinary and it's really fast so i'm involved with a fantastic new project at the francis crick institute in london which is the thousand ancient genomes project which is all focusing on british genomes from the deep past and that will contribute enormous amounts to our understanding. So it's just getting really exciting. Some of the big questions that we haven't really been able to tackle before, or at least, you know, we've only we've only been able to look at them in a very skewed way, have been questions like, you know, when when the Neolithic happens, which is the period in, in time when we see farming appearing and then spreading. So when when that arrives in Britain, are we just looking at people picking up ideas? You know, have we got a few people coming over from the continent with seeds, with livestock, and that idea catching hold and spreading? Or are we looking at a big wave of migration? And I think we can we can reasonably robustly say now, it's a big wave of migration because we've got the genetics, because we can see that the the genes, the DNA of people once you get into the Neolithic is different from the people that were there in the preceding Mesolithic. And we're seeing that quite a bit. So we're seeing lots of waves of migration. I think it will work the other way as well. So I think there'll be periods where we think there's been a migration and then we look at the genetics and go, oh, doesn't seem to have been many people coming over. And a good example of that at the moment, although we've got a lot more data to come in on that, is the Anglo-Saxon period. We don't seem to be seeing, you know, we're told by the histories that there was some massive invasion of Anglo-Saxons and doesn't really seem to stack up genetically at the moment, at least. So fascinating. But one thing, um, and, and probably quite a basic question, I guess, is, you know, we've got this huge wealth uh, of new information becoming available, as you've explained, but what's the kind of appeal to you of, of studying prehistory and, and getting the, that kind of information about these events of the faraway past? I think, particularly in, in a time of such perpetual crisis where we can, we can, I think, struggle to keep up with even contemporary events. What can we learn um, from, mm. from the ancient past? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I suppose for, for me, it's, it is very pertinent to the here and now because because what we see, you know, through through great swathes of time, are is is the human experience. So you know, we see people battling with disease outbreaks. We see you know what happens to society. So particularly thinking about events over the last eighteen months in Britain and globally, you know, this isn't the first time that humans have 
have, have faced a terrible challenge in, in terms of a dreadful infection. And so we learn a lot by looking at how people responded to that in the past and uh, and how society changed, actually. That's, that's really interesting, looking at particularly how society changed after the Black Death, for instance. So I think that there's always, for me, contemporary resonance. And also the other thing for me is that I feel very much that it's rather like that idea that you, you should travel and you should experience other cultures because that makes you look at yourself in an objective way and it makes you look at your own culture in an objective way and also makes you realise that you have this commonality with humans the world over, you know, that we're all, we're all very, very similar. Mm, absolutely. And, and, and some of that, I guess, um, is about uh, how it's communicated and how this, you know, quite complicated scientific developments are put across to the public, which I guess is something that you think about both in your books and your broadcasting. And I know you're, you're a professor of public engagement um, in science as well. Uh, one thing I, I wondered about, I think we hear a lot about the the failings of the media in reporting on science, you know, the, this idea of crushing nuance or not fully understanding the peer review process and so on. But I wondered what scientists can get wrong in communicating with the media. So, so what the kind of flip side of that is. Just to kind of pick mm. up, um, I think the earlier part of your question, a lot of what I do is looking for stories and I and it feels quite archaeological. So when I'm writing a bit like Ancestors, I'm I'm basically looking for the best stories. So I'm not it's not fiction. I'm not I'm not creating that. Um those stories already exist and it's a question of finding them and and then bringing them together in a in a way that they they form a larger saga, I suppose. And I really enjoy that and I enjoy that in teaching as well. And I think that, you know, every uh teaching activity that I that I plan and deliver with my students, I think about in a similar way. I'm I'm telling them a story. And that's that's how we imbibe information as humans anyway. Um, you know, rather than just assembling a list of facts, <laughs> telling a story. And it's not about packaging. It's it's actually much deeper than that. And I think that storytelling is something which is which is sometimes um, overlooked or considered to be not not frivolous, but considered to be um, superfluous and something around the edges of the science rather than actually embedded within the science. I would say a scientific hypothesis is a story about how the world works. So that's a more kind of philosophical take on it. Yeah, it's something I, I noticed in your book a lot, actually, is just um, the, the importance of narrative and, and yeah, the, the way that that brings the science to life for a non-scientist, but as you say, also does seem quite integral to it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's something I've learned over my career, and I've particularly learned it through through getting involved in broadcast media. So I I think that um, some of the some of the best kind of continuing professional development I've done has been in terms of teaching in university has been doing public engagement in other ways, and and particularly doing doing broadcast work and writing as well, of course, and that it all then feeds back into my teaching. But you asked another question, which is about um, how scientists get information across to people and whether that's been done particularly well over the course of the pandemic. And I think it's very difficult because what we've seen over the last 18 months is that it's become incredibly political and it's actually very difficult to tease apart the politics from the science. And of course, every individual scientist, scientists aren't apolitical. But I think the important thing is that they know that and and that they, you know, in their professional life, they strive for objectivity and I think that's, you know, what we really need in a, in a time of pandemic is those scientists that, um, you know, bring that objectivity of their professional discipline to bear on the evidence that we, that we can see in front of us. And then um, when we're looking for solutions in a, in a similar way to do that as objectively as possible and to strip away ideology. 
And I, I feel in the UK that we've particularly been very ideology driven. I don't think, you know, this, this following the science thing is not true at all. We've been following an ideology and trying to shoehorn the science into that a lot of the time. I think that um, there's, there's always kind of worries about what's going to happen to science in a time of crisis, that we're depending on it so much. And that if there is, if there's any kind of nuance or um, uncertainty around um, various facts and figures, then, you know, the the public might feel um, uneasy about that or, or anxious about that. And I think that's, um, I don't think that's then a reason to, to pretend that the the evidence is is either more robust or more certain than we know it to be. I think the absolute fundamental point is that we need to maintain trust and that we need to we need to scientists to be engaging with the public um in a very level way. Uh but it's you know it's very it's very difficult. I mean I, you know there have been times in the pandemic where I that you know we've got this Group, massive group of scientists advising the government through this time, the, the scientific advisory group in emergencies, SAGE. And, you know, there'll be some times when I don't necessarily agree with the, not the analysis, but the kind of the, the solutions that perhaps they're suggesting. But I respect them immensely. But the awful thing that's happened is that they have become, I suppose, the fall guys. You know, if there's then a, a an unpopular government policy which draws on the science and the science as it's presented to the government by SAGE, then SAGE members become become targeted for, for abuse online. Jumping back to your book, uh, so Ancestors focuses on seven burials in British history. And I wondered why you chose to focus on burials, uh, which obviously convey information about much more than, than just death. It's my thing. Um, so you, this is a podcast, so you can't see the um, the shelves behind me. But they're basically full of anatomy, um, fossil record, the evolution of the human. I mean, I'm a biological anthropologist, which means I mostly study um, human bones. And that's my um, contact with the world of archaeology, really. Um, so I, I analyse human bones uh, and, uh, and work with archaeologists doing that. But what I love about perials is not just the bones and what they can tell us, because they can tell us an enormous amount about somebody. You know, I can I can tell how old somebody was when they died or what sex they were, usually. I can look for pathology. I'm particularly interested in that because I was a doctor originally, so um, paleopathology, study of disease in ancient human remains, was, was always my kind of niche aspect within this quite niche-sounding subject. So I'm really interested in the bones themselves. But then actually, you cannot fail to be interested in what's going on in that burial. And you get various cultures where we see we see so much within the burial of life, not just death. So, for instance, I'm writing the follow-up to, to Ancestors at the moment and writing about the Anglo-Saxon period where we get these amazing graves where people are buried fully clothed. And they're also buried with lots of other objects which are obviously important to them and, uh, um, and, and important as signals of their identity. It's quite macho. So the men, um, if they can afford it, are always buried with weapons, I don't think they're all warriors. It's just that you, you know, as a man, you had a you had a spear and a and a shield, and women are buried with very gendered items as well. Amazing beads, necklaces upon necklaces um, of beads, and there are other periods in history as well. So, so in ancestors, where I focus in prehistory, I, I'm looking at burials, for instance, from the from the Bronze Age or the early Bronze Age, the Copper Age, and we've got burials like the Amesbury Archer, which is the most richly furnished 
copper age burial um, in Europe, actually. And and so we're just seeing an enormous amount. It's like a, it sees like a little time capsule of that culture. So we're not just getting the the biology of the individual on their own from the bones. We're actually seeing a lot more about that individual and who they were in their community um, and and what their culture was about. And then burial itself, I think, is interesting and I, because we don't really see any other animals doing it. We know that other animals mourn. We know that chimpanzees mourn. Um, chimpanzee mothers who, who uh, you know, with a dead infant will carry the dead infant round with them for days. Um, elephants will return to the corpse of a, uh, of a friend or relative um, again and again. So there's definitely evidence of, of something that looks like mourning and an understanding of the loss of an individual. I don't think other animals, even chimpanzees, understand that they're going to die. So I think that's something that does mark us out as different, mm. that we know that at some point we're going to die. I think all of religion is about that, is about the kind of the terror of uh, uh, of knowing that we're mortal and trying to deal with that. Mm. And obviously humanists have a different way of dealing with that. But yeah, so trying to find out where burial starts, when burial starts happening. And there's some evidence of very early burial going back a, about 120,000 years ago for our species, modern humans. But we've also now got incontrovertible evidence that uh, our sister species, Neanderthals, um, also buried their dead sometimes and in some places it's not you know and 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 when our species starts burying the dead as well it's not universal it's kind of sporadic but we're seeing that kind of I think we're seeing that thought process underlying Mm. that and another thing um I I wonder about when you're talking about what differentiates us is this um idea of of collective memory I guess that relates to what we were saying earlier about narrative and story um so there's there's something uh, in your book about a hill in Ireland that was once known as the hill of incest I wondered if you could tell me a bit about how genetic discoveries might be bearing out that slightly grim name it's really difficult isn't it because I think um I mean, I've included that in there and I do wonder if there's some kind of remembrance of that, the hill of sin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, because recent genetic evidence has shown that a man buried in um, Newgrange is is the incestuous son of either a parent or child or two siblings. So you, you can't you can't get any, you don't know, you'll never know if it was a parent or child and child or, or two siblings. We just know it was, it was two first degree relatives. So there's a possibility that that has then, you know, passed into legend, as it were, um, and and then gone through time. But I think that I think that the Neolithic tombs are, are more broadly interesting in that way. I do think it is a lot to do with collective memory, and it's a lot to do with um, you know we're seeing quite a lot of those tombs containing relatives, for instance, not necessarily in one person, <laughs> as in this this man who um, who who was a product of incest, but. We're seeing, um, well, Primrose Grange, there was a father and a daughter, um, father and a son buried in um, two separate but fairly close tombs in Ireland as well. Um, and then uh, an instance of brothers buried in a in a tomb in Trumpington Meadows in Cambridgeshire. So this is fascinating because we just haven't been able to get at that information before genetics came along. We've wondered about what those Neolithic chambered tombs are. We've known for a long time that they're communal burials, that there's a a lot of human remains in some of them, and then wondered about what that means. The human remains are quite often fairly mixed up. So there's been been one hypothesis that perhaps um, once you die, you kind of enter this realm of the dead 
as a sort of a communal entity. You'd lose your own individual identity is subsumed into that communal identity and that it's somehow anonymizing. Whereas actually, I think what we're seeing here is it's far from anonymous, at least in those tombs where we've got this evidence of, uh, of relatives buried in the same place. And perhaps what we are seeing is, is kind of family plots, you know, which we're obviously familiar with later on and, and up until quite recently. And it may be that these are essentially family tombs for the elite um, because we, we are entering a period of time where we're seeing a more kind of hierarchical structure of society. And um, they're making their mark in the landscape. And it's, it's a fascinating time because this is the, you know, the Neolithic is the first time we get people really stamping their identity on the landscape and, you know, creating big monumental architecture in the landscape um, from stone circles um, to these amazing chambered tombs. And that, so there's something there about collective memory, but also something about what it means obviously for the living. I mean, tombs are all about the living, really. They're not, you know, we think they're about the dead, but they're not, they're about the living. And if you're a relative of somebody who's buried in that tomb, which is so prominent in the landscape, that perhaps says something about your land rights and your um, your right to live in that in that landscape and your own authority as well. Mm, and there are some findings as well that you write about that hint at a past we might prefer to forget, like cannibalism. Oh, yeah. Um, so the cannibals of Cheddar, yeah, so we we always associate cheddar with cheese, don't we? But um, <laughs> back in the back in the Mesolithic, they were eating each other. Now, and I'm always really, really sceptical about evidence of cannibalism because archaeological human remains frequently get bashed up. You've got to be very, very careful about leaping to con- conclusions about smashed bones. But Dr. Sylvia Bello at the Natural History Museum has has spent a huge amount of time pouring over this collection of hundreds of fragments of bones from Goff's cave in, in the Cheddar Gorge. And there's incontrovertible evidence of, uh, of cannibalism there. So some of the long bones, so things like thigh bones and, and humeri in the arm uh, are smashed when they're clearly green, when we, the bone is fresh. Um, and and fractures look very different when bone is fresh from when bone has been in the ground for a long time and then perhaps disturbed and gets broken. Um, there's also um, human tooth gnaw marks on the bones. So, you know, that kind of adds up to um, being fairly kind of suspicious. Um, and then also there's a there, uh, there are skulls which have been carved into cups. So the, the base of the skull has been taken away. You're just left with the dome of the skull then. And you kind of turn that upside down. And somebody's chipped very carefully around the edges to, to even it out to create a, a kind of cup. And I think the first thing that we feel when we when we read about this or we even see the remains, as I've done, is um, a sense of um, quite intense disgust, actually, which is, I think, reasonable because we don't tend to go around eating each other nowadays. But again, we need to be objective. We need to think, right, was it abhorrent to them? It obviously wasn't that abhorrent because they're doing it. And you've got to think about all the reasons why somebody might have been eating someone else. You know, it could be nutritional. It could be that they're starving. I think the skull cups go against that a bit. And there's also a bit of engraving on a radius too. So there's, I think there's something more going on than just food. And certainly Dr. Silver Bellet thinks that. So then you think about other reasons why people might eat each other. Well, you might eat an enemy in order to um, imbibe their power perhaps or to really kind of mark the fact that you're victorious over them there's lots and lots of reasons um through time why people might might have eaten each other um prehistory is always um difficult in that respect and that we 
it's prehistory, nobody's written anything down. And so we just have to look at the the evidence and and think about what is the most likely explanation in each case. And I think that the most likely explanation for those for those cheddar remains is that it's not purely nutritional. There's some kind of ritual going on as well. On the other hand, I mean, the ritual doesn't necessarily mean, uh, you know, I've, I've suggested an example there where um, it might be done in deliberate disrespect, I suppose, um, or um, as a way of marking your superiority over over another group or another person. But it could, you know, we do have to then really shake ourselves out of our current cultural um, ideas and go, could it have been a respectful thing to do? Is it just what you do to Gran when when she's died? You know, we now think it's respectful to cremate somebody and then grind them up into a fine powder and go and chuck that powder off a cliff. And, you know, other, if we told the Mesolithic people that, they might have thought that we were obscene. So it is very weird to, you know, you kind of turn it back on yourself and go, okay, yeah, <laughs> some of the things we do are quite weird when you when you talk about it like that. Yeah, I mean, I guess we probably won't be seeing uh, a return to carving um, carving cups out of each other's skulls, or I hope not. But uh, that's a really fascinating <laughs> point about um, you know our, our current burial practices. Yeah, yeah I, I sort of wondered what what you think the archaeologists of the future might be able to learn from studying our remains and the way that we commemorate the dead. Well, we've we've done such a um about turn over the 20th century into the 21st century in britain and also um in in europe more widely not quite as not quite as profoundly but in the states as well if you go back to 1900 very very few people were cremated in 1900 and one of them was pitt rivers but it was a really kind of unusual thing to do and, and most people looked at that with kind of horror and certainly um, Pitt River's wife thought thought it was ridiculous that he was going to be cremated and they had a lot of arguments about it. And now we just think, well, it's just, you know, it's the norm. That's largely economic. So that's come about because of an economic necessity and, you know, lack of a lack of space, I suppose, to bury people in. There's always been a lack of space. So, yeah, this kind of change to cremation, I think archaeologists of the future will look at that and go, oh, there must have been a massive change in religion in the in 20th century Britain. Um, and of course, there wasn't. Uh, what there was was secularisation. So we've seen quite profound secularisation to the extent that now more than half of the country is not religious and, and says so on, on polls. Um, but I don't think actually that the that the trend to cremation is much to do with that. Weirdly, I think it is just quite economic. We're going to see another economic change um, very soon because... Of course, all these people that are cremated are cremated in big gas-fired crematoria. So that's not sustainable. So, you know, we need to tackle that quite quickly. And lots of people are uh, are opting for things like um, eco-burials again, Um, you know, going back to burial being being the more ecological option. But then we come up with this issue of room again. So I think then you're looking at other ways. And I talk about some of the innovative um, ways that, bodies are being disposed of um at the moment and uh, they seem to these seem to have been innovations which have come from america but they've, they've come over here so we've got things like resumation when a body is essentially liquidized and then um that the liquid can be used as a fertilizer and i also talk about that kind of the difference between memorializing somebody's life and disposing of a body and i do think we're going to see more kind of a, a move away from a focus on the body. You're listening to With Reason from the New Humanist magazine and the Rationalist Association. 
and I'm talking to anatomist, author and broadcaster Alice Roberts about ancient burials, bodies and the business of science communication. And if science is your thing, why not head to our podcast archive where you can find Joe Marchant talking about the skies and the science of awe and Kate Devlin discussing sex, robots and feminism. Time for a quick word from New Humanist Deputy Editor Nikki. If you're enjoying With Reason, remember that you can find reading lists and transcripts for all episodes on the New Humanist website. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the magazine using our discount for listeners? Just head to newhumanist.org.uk slash subscribe and enter the offer code with reason. That means you'll get four beautifully designed editions sent to you through the year, as well as access to archive pieces going back through the decades, all for just £13.50. Back now to Samira and Alice Roberts. So, Alice, we've been talking about burials, uh, which, as you say, are rituals often carried out in or framed by the presence or absence of religious belief. Uh, You're the president of Humanist UK. uh, So I wondered if you could tell me about your own religious background and and what shapes your perspective on belief or or non-belief. Yeah, well, I was I was brought up in a, a quite devoutly religious family, so I I got taken to church um, pretty much every Sunday, um, popped into Sunday school, um, and and kind of just brought up with no kind of idea that there was really anything else on offer, and I went as far as getting confirmed. So um, I think I got confirmed when I was about fourteen, and then the following year went. I just I no I I can't do this. I, I I'm not. I'm not believing this. So maybe it was the process of going through confirmation where I think you do you do examine your faith. And unfortunately, it took a little bit longer for, for the penny to drop for me. But it did, it was a process of questioning. And I think I was doing a lot of science at school as well. And so, so that kind of questioning and kind of critical thinking extended to my, I suppose, my personal beliefs and my my thoughts about the world itself. And, and I realised that even if I were to take most of the Bible. So I was brought up as, a, as an Anglican, Church of England. Even if I was to take most of the Bible with a pinch of salt, there are kind of some fundamental things that you do have to believe in. One of these being the existence of God. <laughs> if you don't believe in the existence of God, you're out of the club, really. So I, I suppose I became an atheist aged 15. It wasn't for a long time until I realised that actually what I was, was a humanist. And I think a lot of people are like that. So I've had a lot of conversations with people who have, you know, come to, you know, their approach to the world, sometimes having left religion, as I did, sometimes, you know, never, never having, uh, you know, been indoctrinated to begin with. So, you know, just, just quite naturally growing up, thinking that the world is a natural place, that we don't have to invoke supernatural ideas or supernatural phenomena to explain things that we're happy that there's some mystery and some you know and and there are things that we don't know but that doesn't mean that we have to invent things to fill in those gaps and we have this brilliant tool called science which can help us to explore those gaps but also actually to accept that science probably won't be able to tell us everything and that we still don't need to invoke supernatural entities and um yeah so so I think for me it was uh, it was quite a long time after I became an atheist that I, I realised that actually what described my approach to the world best was humanism because of the way that it that we view the world as a, a as a natural place and our position in it as a as a natural phenomenon as that you know as an evolved species just like any other so that came through very strongly from me studying biology that, but there was something else and I think the something else was that 
I did believe very strongly in the capability of humans to make the world a better place and to cooperate with each other and to use those kind of best aspects of our uh, of what makes us human so um capabilities like like empathy kindness um together with uh, logic and rationality um and that those things together were kind of the the best you could be as a human and and would help you make decisions about your own life but also about um society more generally as well and then you go, well, actually, that is humanism. Mm. Coming back to the idea of science and religious faith, which you said, you know, you're, you're sort of getting more interested in in science informed your atheism. Obviously, historically, as, as you say, I think that um, that experience of um, growing up in a religious family and not really questioning religion initially, that's probably something that was quite society wide for, for long periods of our history. So I'm interested in science and religious influence, which is something that you write about in Ancestors. So one story I was particularly struck by was about William Buckland, the 19th century antiquarian, uh, who was also a priest. And you write that for him, studying the earth meant studying the work of God. And and you describe how his early work actually started from the position that Noah's Ark and the flood that prompted it were historical fact. Um, So I wondered if you could if you could tell me a bit about that. Well, Buckland's a fascinating character. I really enjoyed writing the chapter on um, the Red Lady of Paviland, which is um, one of the um, burials in the book that he excavated. But yeah, Buckland himself is just extraordinary. And he um, there's a lot of evidence and a lot of source material. And he is interested in um, geology. He's interested in archaeology. He's a professor of geology at Oxford University, as well as being a cleric, obviously. And he didn't see any tension between those two things. He, For him, science and religion were not in tension at all, um, although he could see that there was a bit of a problem developing in the 19th century when he was, he was around, that, you know, as science was starting to create this idea of how old the world was and the the story of um, evolution was starting to starting to come out as well he could see that there was going to be tension that you you certainly couldn't take the bible literally anymore but on the other hand he was convinced that there were some things in the bible that that probably were true and you know were describing events in the deep past and so he had this obsession with diluvian theory where he 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 basically thought Noah's, Noah's flood was a historical reality, and was trying to find or trying to find evidence to show that actually science was going to back up the Bible in that respect. And so it really shackled his thinking because he he couldn't see the evidence any other way. He found this skeleton of the Red Lady of Paviland, who actually wasn't a woman either, who was a male skeleton. That's another thing that Buckland couldn't come to terms with. She looked like she was buried with what looked like jewellery. So that was, as far as he was concerned, that was a that was a done deal. It's a closed case. But he he couldn't conceptualise that those human remains could have been as old as the the elephant remains that he found in the same cave. Now, those elephant remains were mammoth remains. He thought they were um, elephants that maybe had got washed into the cave during the Great Flood, um, and therefore must be much, much older than the human remains. He thought that humans were quite um, ancient, but only in the Middle East. So he didn't expect to see any humans at the same time as these these very ancient elephants. 
So he he says, and he writes in a letter to Lady Mary Cole, we cannot admit the Red Lady to have been antediluvian, in other words, to have existed before the flood in Britain, because he didn't think there were any humans before the flood in Britain. So again, you know, ideology getting in the way of science. And um, to be fair to him, later on in life, having put forward all this evidence for what he thought was the um, the Great Flood, later on in life, as more and more evidence stacked up from geology, he backpedaled and he said, yeah, I was wrong. It's it's not a flood at all. It is a, a series of ice ages um, because the evidence had, had had piled up to to the point where actually you you couldn't you couldn't argue anymore that it was that it looked like global inundation. Um, and clearly what he had was was ice ages. So it's interesting because although his mind was shackled, he did change mm. it. You know, his religion got in the way. But it didn't stop him completely. So in the end, I would have said he was more of a scientist. Yeah. It's interesting. And do you think um, that those two things are in opposition? Because obviously Buckland, as as you explain, he was pursuing scientific discovery within a theological framework. So he was kind of starting from the place that Mm. science wouldn't challenge religious belief. So whether that was changing his view that the that the religious aspect was more metaphorical than literal, but it was still kind of within that framework. Um, do you think that that religion and, and science are kind of fundamentally incompatible or are there, are there ways in which that sort of Buckland attitude is maybe still around for some scientists, I wonder? It's really difficult to say. I mean, I, I suppose if you look at it from a broadly um, societal level, you'd say, well, they're not incompatible because there's plenty of scientists that are religious. There are, I mean, you know, if you look at scientists as a whole, uh, we are less religious than the than the rest of the population. Um, but from an individual perspective, there are obviously lots and lots of scientists doing absolutely brilliant work, very eminent scientists who are religious. So it's 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 not incompatible on that kind of individual level for them. And, you know, somehow they are able to 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 look at their religion in one way and look at their science in one way and the, and the two are not in tension with each other um, in their minds. For me, you know, I think it's just very intensely personal thing. And for me, it was, there was a tension. And I was reading a lot, um, you know, when I was a teenager, I was reading a lot of um, books about evolution, um, but also about these kind of philosophies too. So Stephen Jay Gould in particular, he, who came up with the, um, the idea of non-overlapping magisteria, NOMA, where he said actually they don't religion and science don't need to be intention because they're they're doing different jobs they're explaining different things and there might be you know sometimes that you're turning to religion for answers and sometimes that you're turning to science to answers and they they don't need to be intention with each other but in my own mind they were so it's interesting isn't it because it's like for me it doesn't work but obviously it does work for for some other people mm, yeah and actually just sort of coming back to Buckland in a roundabout way. Of course, he was barking up the wrong tree trying to prove the historical truth of Noah's Ark. But something fascinating in your book is how some developments in ancient DNA do support some old stories, including from the Bible. Uh, So the one I'm thinking of is the case of bubonic plague and flea constipation. I wondered if you could. Yeah, now that is absolutely fascinating. So I think if we if we look at the Bible as containing perhaps some, you know, historical um, nuggets within it, then you know, I suppose it's. I suppose we're saying what Buckland was saying, which was, which was that, um, you know, could it be that this is history, and could it be that the Genesis flood myth is history? And it's a reasonable question to ask. It's just that once you get 
the evidence piling up against it, you have to admit that um, that it's not possible. But certainly with evidence of the uh, of the bubonic plague, you know there are there are hints of this in the Bible, and you know there are stories where you where you think, well, it, it does sound like the plague. And, and then we've now got the ability to sequence not only human DNA, um, but pathogen DNA. So any any kind of diseases will, you know, they'll be bringing their own bringing their own DNA with them. And um, when it comes to the the plague, I mean, this is this has been really fascinating because we can look at, for instance, passages in the Bible about the plague. We can look at later history as well and um, look at the. The, the plague is described in the 6th century, for instance, the Justinianic plague, and wonder whether that was the same pathogen that caused the Black Death much, much later in the, in the medieval period. But unless you've got a diagnostic technique, you don't know. And now we have a diagnostic technique. So now we know that the bubonic plague was, was around at the time it's being described in the Bible. Um, so it seems very possible indeed that this, this really was the plague. Um, we know that the Justinianic plague is the same. It's Yersinia pestis. It's the same plague pathogen. And we've had recently, just a couple of years ago, a, a sequence from a, a cemetery in, in Essex, Spong Hill, showing that the Justinianic plague reached Britain. So we didn't know that at all from the history. So it's, it's really interesting because it means that we can go back to the histories again. We've got another strand of, we've got another diagnostic technique to help us. And sometimes we'll we'll see that supporting what is described in the histories or, or actually nailing the, the pathogen for us. But sometimes, as in this case of Spong Hill, there's no historical record of the plague reaching eastern England, but, but we've got it. We've got the DNA. So we can say, yes, it did. So I think we're going to see that a lot with genetics. We're going to be able to explore historical stories but we're also going to be able to really extend that historical story. Yeah, yeah, it all comes neatly back to what we were talking about at the outset about um, narrative and and science, doesn't it? Uh, Very appealing. Um, So in each episode of With Reason, we dig around in the New Humanist archive for a piece that speaks to our guest's work. So today I have been looking at a 2018 piece by a science writer, uh, Peter Forbes, and it's a profile of David Reich, a geneticist um, who's carried out pioneering research in the field of ancient DNA that I think touches on lots of of what we've been talking about, um, human migration and identity and and so on. Uh, So yeah, I wondered if you could tell me a bit about David Reich's research. I know you cite it at points in the book um, and, and its significance. Well, David Wright has been a real pioneer in, in ancient genetics and he has really helped to bring genetics to the, to the fore when it comes to exploring some of these questions, particularly about ancient migrations. I would urge anybody who is interested in this whole sphere of, uh, of archaeology meets genetics to, to read David Reich's brilliant book. Great. And so, you, you know, you say he's a he's a pioneer and there's obviously, as we spoke about at the outset, these huge developments in this in this field. Uh, where do you think is left to go for the collaboration between genetics and archaeology? I think we're just starting. Um, so I, I think that um, we're seeing... At the moment, we're seeing genetics and, and, you know, particularly we are in the era of genomics. We're seeing so many revelations coming through thick and fast. We will understand a lot more about people moving around in the past. That's that's one of the really big things. We're able to look at kinship. Um, we're able to sex skeletons that, that I couldn't sex, for instance. So there'll be some skeletons where I'll say they're indeterminate sex, all the 
you know, everything that I look at in the skeleton varies on the spectrum. And there'll always be skeletons where I go, I don't know. I, don't, I can't say for sure if this is male or female. And um, genetics can. So there's there's lots of kind of details like that to be added. Um, but there's some really profound bigger picture stuff as well. And I think we will get to a point, you know, it's quite it's, it's quite a disruptive technology at the moment because it's coming along and providing answers that we didn't even know were possible 10 years ago. Uh, but I think it will get to the point where um, it becomes a, an almost standard thing to do when you're analysing human remains in the same way that we use radiocarbon dating to work out the, the date of, uh, of any organic remains. I think that we'll be, we'll be seeing genomes used uh, much more frequently and much more widely. And then one of the really exciting developments at the moment is that you don't even need a bone to get DNA out of. You can get DNA out of mud. Wow. So we're seeing amazing breakthroughs with um, cedar DNA, sedimentary ancient DNA, where just using soil samples, for instance, you can extract DNA from that and you can see which organisms were around in a particular environment. That's sort of dizzying the yeah. amount of information. I know. <laughs> Before you go, what are you, what are you up to for the rest of the year? I'm just off filming a new series of Digging for Britain. So we had um, a fallow year last year because there wasn't much archaeology happening. But I'm off travelling around the country, visiting really exciting archaeological sites. And I'm halfway through filming that. That should be on in uh, probably November, December on BBC Two. And um, and I'm also going on tour. So I'm doing a small tour in, in November where I'll be talking about ancestors and all the details of that are on my website. Well, thank you, Alice. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Um, so Alice Roberts there talking about her new book, Ancestors. And with me now is Nikki Sethsmith, Deputy Editor of New Humanist magazine. Uh, so Nikki, what's your take on what we've just heard from Alice? So I was surprised at um, the level to which genetics had was revolutionising what we know about history and prehistory. Um, I knew that developments were being made, but I was particularly struck by the fact that we might need to revise our ideas about the Anglo-Saxon invasion. That seemed particularly interesting because that informs so much about uh, what we think about identity in this country and Englishness in particular. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's something really fascinating about um, the, these sort of legends that we grow up with and the points of crossover between legend and history and maybe not all is as we think it is. Yeah, you really got that sense of excitement from Alice of just applying this, you know, what she called a disruptive technology to these really old, um, you know, ancient myths and these different forms of knowledge colliding. And I, yeah, I also found it interesting that when she was talking about the act of burial and what we can learn about that being as much to do with life as it is to do with death, but also that it might say something very distinctive about our species because I, I didn't realize that animals didn't bury their dead I, I sort of had a notion of the elephant graveyard and obviously as Alice says chimpanzees mourn elephants mourn but they don't actually bury their their dead yeah that whole idea about what makes us human uh, or what differentiates humans rather from from other species I think it's obviously a huge question and, and one that is of particular interest perhaps to humanists but also more broadly and I wonder also if, if the you know what we're talking about now, the kind of um, story and myth and legend, uh, if that's another another thing that might be differentiating. There's certainly a lot of that in what Alice was talking about. Absolutely, yeah. we're definitely storytelling animals. Yeah. 
Uh, so that's all for today. Uh, we'll be back next week with more. And remember, you can find reading lists and transcripts for all episodes of With Reason at newhumanist.org.uk. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at New Humanist. This podcast was presented by me, Samira Shackle, with Nikki Seth-Smith. Our sound engineer was David Crackles, and our series producer is Alice Block. See you back here soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.